a commercial mission to the far side of the moon. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is tasking commercial company Firefly Aerospace to send a lander to the far side of the moon. It will carry with it hardware that will help with future missions to the moon and beyond, and it will also carry payloads for other commercial companies. It's part of the agency's broader plan to establish a science base on the moon and highlights a new lunar economy for other commercial companies. We'll hear from Firefly Aerospace about the ambitious mission and the path forward to the far side of the moon. Then, how an app might help astronauts maintain their sharp minds on trips to the moon and beyond, and how it might help us here on Earth, too. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Commercial company Firefly Aerospace was awarded a $112 million contract from NASA to deliver multiple payloads to the far side of the moon in 2026. It's part of NASA's program CLIPS, which pays commercial companies to deliver payloads to the lunar surface, turning the moon into a science base and paving the way for astronauts to live and work on the surface. Firefly's Blue Ghost lander will deliver the payload, and it won't be the first. The company is planning to send a lander to the near side of the moon next year. Here to talk more about the landing missions and the growing lunar economy is Firefly's vice president of spacecraft, Jana Spruce. Jana, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Glad to be here. So a $112 million NASA contract to head to the far side of the moon. Tell me a bit about this mission. This is uh, super exciting. Yeah, we're we're really excited to be performing this mission uh, with NASA. Um, it's actually for the delivery of three NASA payloads. So um, the, the first payload is uh, a radio telescope called Lucy Knight, which is a very sensitive radio emissions telescope looking at low frequency uh, from the from space, uh, being on the far side of the moon is pretty exciting because from there, the the moon will block Earth's noise, if you will, uh, and enable them to see into the cosmic dark ages. Um, essentially, looking at uh, the origins of the universe there from the far side of the moon, where it's nice and quiet. Additionally, there's uh, also on the lander is NASA's user terminal, which provides a communications relay from the surface. And then we're also putting into lunar orbit um, an ESA, the European Space Agency satellite called Lunar Pathfinder. Very interesting. Let, let's start with the actual lander itself, kind of work our, our way backwards here. Tell us a bit about this this lander that's going to be used for this mission and that's under development by by your company. What do we know about it? Sure. This is our second lander. Um, we're the one uh, the first one is in work right now. Um, it's going through some testing and getting ready to launch uh, the middle of next year. Um, so this is a very similar lander to that one. Um, the first lander had 10 smaller payloads on it, um, and this one is only carrying um, the two. So, But um, other than that, it's uh, very similar to the, the prior Blue Ghost um, lander. And and since this is radio, can you, you explain what it looks like, the kind of size of this lander? Um... Sure. It's um, our, our lander has, uh, it's a little bit... Uh, you know, short and has legs, of course, for for landing on the surface that have um, some sort of, you know, bowl looking feet uh, to enable it to land on sort of, you know, unsure surface. We don't know exactly where the exact landing spot will end up being. Uh, Part of our lander package is to, um, you know, assess the lunar surface as it's coming down and pick the right landing spot. Um, So, you know, legs, of course, are, are pretty important. Um, it's sort of a 
sort of a conical shape, if you will. Um, and it, you know, we'll have uh, the pretty gold reflective uh, blankets on it, which is always nice. Um, and then the payloads actually sit on top of the lander itself. Uh, and and you mentioned that this is the second lunar mission for for Firefly Aerospace and and this lander concept. Um, tell us about the first. Um, that one will go to um, it will go up uh, middle of next year is the the target launch uh, time for that in twenty twenty four. Um, and so that that lander, our Blue Ghost one mission, again it has a variety of payloads, um, including a drill that will drill into the surface of the moon. Um, it also has a telescope. It has some other payloads that are looking at um, studying the lunar the lunar surface, and in particularly dust. Dust is a big deal for going back to the moon because it can it can stick to things. Um, it can be uh, very very difficult to to deal with. Um, it, everyone is also very interested in what all it's composed of, and if there are resources there that can be used in the future. Jana, the, these missions are all part of. Um... NASA's CLIPS program, um, and it seems like kind of a paradigm shift when it comes to space exploration and science, whereas, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, NASA doesn't come up with a science experiment wants to do and then builds a lander and sends it somewhere. Instead, commercial companies like yourself are building a lander that NASA can utilize to get things to wherever it needs to go. I mean, is that the case? And, and, and how is the market kind of responding to this. Yeah, that's right. I think one of NASA's goals, they've said, is to be one of many customers. And so as we see some successes in getting to the moon, I think that we'll continue to see increases in interest from commercial entities who also want to go there. Um, there's a lot of challenges with the environment on the moon. And as we are working through how to deal with some of those, it just unlocks more and more capability. Um, the way that we've planned uh, this particular mission, we actually have included a transfer stage as part of the mission, which will stay in lunar orbit. And that's enabled us to uh, take extra capacity with us on this mission. And we're actually actively talking to several commercial customers about um, joining us uh, on the mission that that have interest in going to lunar orbit. Mm -hmm. It's kind of mind-boggling to hear you say that word. Commercial customers interested in going to the moon. Like, is there really, <laughs> is there really a market at the moon? I think it's evolving. Um, and, you know, certainly the more we learn about what we can do there that we can't do on Earth, um, you, you know, the more exciting it gets and the, and the more folks are going to be interested in that. Um, whether it's collecting resources that are available on the moon uh, more easily or, you know, than we can get to um, on Earth or whether it's things we can do in orbit. Um, additionally, you know, our our transfer stage not only could go to lunar orbit and take customers there, but we could also um, turn from lunar orbit and you're kind of partway there. We could turn and go to even Mars or Venus with an exploratory mission there. That's incredible. So so the moon is kind of a, a staging area and, and you've got a spacecraft that can take you elsewhere. The moon is not the limit. Yeah, absolutely. This, the, the moon is just a stepping point into the rest of the universe. It's kind of like if you can get there, you've you've solved a lot of your, um, you know, initial difficult problems. And so then, you know, going from there further out gets gets um, easier and more exciting. Again, let's take a step back and, and talk a bit more about Blue Ghost. What what has been the kind of the, the development of, of this vehicle? What kind of testing are you able to do on it, and, and what will you be looking for in in this first mission uh, next year um, when when your first of, of these lunar missions launches? Um, 
Right. Well, as as you would expect, um, lunar lunar missions, you only really get one chance to do it right. So we do extensive testing on the ground to make sure that everything, uh, first of all, you know, works and communicates the way it's supposed to and, and powers up properly. We do all of those checkouts with the payloads and with the lander itself uh, here on the ground. And some of those have already started. We're already um, having payloads being delivered uh, that that we're going through the, that checkout process, even though we don't launch until next year. Um, additionally, all of the components on a lunar lander have to go through extensive environmental testing. And so uh, that includes um, vibration testing, which makes sure that it will survive the, the launch loads um, as the rocket, you know, shakes it quite a bit taking off. Um, the other the other important uh, things we look at are, does it survive the thermal um, requirements of space? The the lunar surface in particular can be very hot in the sun and can be very cold um, when it's in the shade. So making sure that all of those components are, are thermally protected and will operate through the range of temperatures we expect them to see uh, is, is also very important. Jana, is there is there a, ch- a, a different challenge in in getting a payload to the far side of the moon? You you mentioned that there are there are um, you know the moon kind of blocks communication with or, or the noise of of the Earth, but it, I would assume it also blocks communication. Is is there is there anything that you have to prove on on this first Blue Ghost mission that you're going to use to kind of get to a more challenging? Um, landing spot on the far side of the moon with your with your second Blue Ghost mission. Right, certainly the the delays in the in the communication are are a challenge on the moon in general. There's you know a, a few seconds of delay, so you don't have the opportunity to have a a person in the loop, if you will, to make a split second decision. So our our Blue Ghost vehicle does a lot of the its landing decisions autonomously. So that's helpful for when we are also on the on on the um, on the far side. Uh, as we're, you know, even even further out, but we will be in communication with the spacecraft the whole time. So, um, but you know, the far side is interesting because not many not many people have gone there, and so uh, that makes it really exciting for us as well. And I guess, Jenna, like you know, you, you mentioned that there is a market for some commercial partners, but I've got to assume that you know NASA's interest in these missions and and NASA's contract money are are a big help. Um, how has the Clips program really helped develop programs like? Blue Ghost at, at Firefly Airspace. Right. I, I think that the main thing that NASA is helping with really is buying down the risk. So, um, you know, as we see some successes landing on the on the lunar surface through the CLIPS program, I think that that makes it a lot easier for the commercial companies to, to jump in because, uh, you know, they have better confidence that those missions are going to be successful. Um, and once NASA has some payloads that are that are there, that that helps a lot. Mm hmm. And and finally, Jana, I mean, your team uh, and you, you're sending payloads to the moon. I mean, what is the energy like at, at Firefly Space to know that you're working on something that's <laughs> going to the moon and something that's going to the far side of the moon? That's something you mentioned not a lot of landers have gone before. <laughs> yes. We're, you know, it's it's really exciting time um, in our industry as a whole and particularly at, at Firefly. We're really an end-to-end space transportation company. So um, as you know, we work on we work on rockets. Uh, we work on lunar landers. We work on in-space mobility platforms. So there's there's lots of exciting things going on here. And certainly the team was was really excited um, for this mission in particular. Um, as you said, the far side of the moon is is a is a unique spot, and we're really we're really looking forward to to going there next. Mm-hmm. And, and and one more finally, Janet, maybe too soon to ask this, but uh, will there be any mementos or stowaways on on uh, these missions to? Uh, 
highlight the, the work that the team is doing for such a, a complicated and complex mission? Well, we don't have specific plans yet, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you in the loop if, with what we do so decide to do. Sounds good. If you need an Are We There Yet sticker, I can provide one for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might cost you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that up with the budget department here. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Janice Spruce. She's the vice president of spacecraft at Firefly Aerospace. Uh, Jana, thank you so much for, for joining us and look forward to uh, watching you head to the moon. Thank you, Brendan. We'll see you on the far side. Still to come, how apps might help keep astronaut brains sharp. If you and your brain are going to be in space for a while, uh, whether it's a short jaunt to the moon or a long trip to Mars, your brain is going to change as a result of being in space. That's just ahead when Are We There Yet returns. But stay listening. Next week on the show, we'll take a deep dive into NASA's 2024 budget proposal. It's a 7% increase to a total of 27.2 billion dollars. We'll dive deep into it with the Planetary Society's Casey Dreyer. Stay listening. Are We There Yet? continues here on 90.7 WMFE News. listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. How can we train our brains for space travel? That's a question asked by researchers at Posit Science. Space travel can have negative impacts on our brain, so the organization's researchers are looking at ways to keep astronauts sharp, especially as they venture to farther places like the Moon or Mars. Here to talk about the research and how an app might be able to help is Dr. Henry Monka, the CEO of Posit Science. Dr. Monka, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So, so Henry, let's talk about what we do know about uh, what happens to the brain um, when you are traveling in space. <laughs> what impact does space travel have on our noggins? You know, it's a it's a great question. And and first, you might think, well, the answer is nothing, right? You're up there in space. Why would anything happen to your brain? But you know, one thing that we've really learned about the brain over the past 20 or 30 years is the adult brain is plastic. It is constantly changing in response to what we ask it to do in the environment we find ourselves in. And that means that if you are going to be, if you and your brain are going to be in space for a while, uh, whether it's a short jaunt to the moon or a long trip to Mars, your brain is going to change as a result of being in space. And you know, there's really kind of two main sources of that. One is, hey, you're in zero G. And it turns out that NASA scientists have looked at this, and that causes changes in your brain. It causes changes in your sort of the the the, the pressure that your the fluid that your brain floats in exerts on your brain, and that can have some interesting effects. But it also changes your brain because you are in a small environment, relatively isolated, with limited social contact and very specific duties for a long time, and that changes your brain as well. And that's led a lot of NASA scientists to think about, well, hey, if we're starting to get optimized to go back to the moon and then to go to Mars, well, what do we need to do to maintain our brain health on these journeys? Your brain is plastic. That is not a very reassuring thing to hear uh, from you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's better that it can change than if it can't. Imagine if your brain hadn't changed a bit since you were, let's say, 21 years old. Would that be good or bad, Brad? That's a fair point. That would be a very good thing. That would be a very good thing. Exactly. <laughs> now, brain change is how your brain learns. It, it's how your brain remembers. The fact that your brain reorganizes itself throughout your life is actually just a fundamental part of how your brain works. The brain works by changing itself and by adapting itself to do the things that we ask it to do. And um, that's that's what gives us the amazing brains we have. Mm -hmm. and, and while space travel impacts the brain uh, in, in various different ways, as, as you've outlined here, um, you really need your brain for space travel, right? I, I'm thinking of of all the important things that an astronaut would need. They, they would really need to have that, the ability to use their brain to make these critical decisions that could possibly be life or death on a mission, right? Absolutely. You know, you can ask the question and people have, hey, why not just send robots, right? Robots are pretty good at stuff these days. And the answer as to why we're sending humans on these missions is that... Um, uh, hey, we need someone there on site who can react in real time to what's going on and bring an incredible background of knowledge and training and experience to be able to solve the problems that are come up, going to come up. We haven't been to Mars before, and that means that when astronauts are going to Mars, weird stuff's going to happen that they're going to have to figure out, and they're going to need uh, to have their brains in top shape because they're going to have to be top performers to uh, to make this all work. So let's talk about some ways to to mitigate that. Um, you're involved with with the pilot study. How how do we go about making sure that these plastic brains don't change too much, so that we're actually able <laughs> well, to function while we're in space? You know, they are going to change a bit, and uh, and the question is, how can we keep them in top performance as they're changing? And you know, of course. You know, you and, and NASA and many of your listeners may have already thought about this from a physical fitness perspective, right? We're going to coop these astronauts up in a in a in a in a you know some sort of vessel. We're going to send them off to Mars. How are we going to keep them in physical shape? Well, they're going to have to exercise, right? And we've all seen astronauts working on treadmills and doing all kinds of things to keep their muscles strong in zero G and prevent bone uh, density loss and so forth. Brain health is going to be very much the same. What we have built here at Posit Science is a set of brain plasticity-based brain training exercises. And these are exercises you do on a computer or, you know, the folks in the NASA study did them on a tablet. And what they are is they actually, uh, they are training exercises that, um, that use these principles of brain change and brain plasticity to make your brain faster and more accurate. And by making brain information processing faster and more accurate, you build stronger connections between neurons and neural networks across the brain. And that unto itself both maintains and improves cognitive performance, but it also keeps the brain healthy as a biological organ. You know, in the same way that exercising can, you know, make you strong enough to do the things you might need to do in space, but also keeps your muscles and your heart and every other part of your body healthy. The right kind of brain exercises, you know, maintain and improve cognitive performance, but also keep the brain healthy as a biological system as we're, um, you know, people are, or astronauts are going to be out in these isolated environments for extended periods of time. Henry, talk a bit about um, this pilot study you did, because, I mean, getting access to astronaut brains is very difficult for a multitude of reasons, right? There's 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 very few people that are actually in space, few people that have traveled to space. Um, and, and getting access to, to biological tests on them is, is difficult because everybody is doing uh, biological tests on them. So, so, so how, how are you able to do, how does this pilot study fit into our knowledge of this? Yeah. So uh, we have um, done quite a lot of clinical trials of Brain HQ in all kinds of people here at Positive Science, ranging from, you know, healthy older adults to people with various kinds of brain impairments to, you know, top performing younger adults. 
Uh, and the folks at NASA actually reached out to us and said, um, hey, brain health was a priority at NASA as they were planning the Artemis mission to the moon and then on to Mars. It come across the research that we and our collaborators had done and they wanted to um, you know, put it to use at NASA. And so they came to us with the first tip of an extended research project. So what they did is they actually, for all the reasons you mentioned about how valuable astronaut time is, this first study involves people working at NASA um, who match astronauts in all kinds of ways about their physical performance, their cognitive performance, their age and their demographics, but aren't quite astronauts. So this is usually where NASA starts. And so they took uh, four of those folks, again, very top performing people, uh, and, um, and had them go through about uh, six to eight weeks of brain training with Brain HQ. And the goal was, well, hey, let's do this as a first experiment. Let's measure what happens to their cognitive performance. Uh, and, um, and let's see what we see. Let's see if this is a tool that could be helpful to astronauts going forward. Uh, and they got just fantastic results. Um, you know, these astronaut lookalikes, if I may call them that. Um, you know, they did about 15 hours of brain training, you know, a couple hours a week for six to eight weeks. And what they showed is, um, uh, you know, of course, they got better at the brain training exercises, which you would expect to, right? We're past, we practice and our, our brains change. But then really importantly, they actually got 19% better on the standard independent neurocognitive battery that NASA uses, the CTB, the cognitive test battery. This is a very interesting test battery that NASA developed a few years ago with uh, academic research partners. And what they had to do was they actually had to build a cognitive test battery that was much harder than normal. So, you know, normally if you go into a neurologist to get some cognitive tests, you know, they're going to give you tests that are appropriate for someone who is worried about maybe their brain isn't working too well. You know, NASA had the opposite problem, which is they had people whose brains were working extremely well and they needed these tests to be very sensitive. So they built the CTB with this very high kind of ceiling about how good you could you could tap out on it. And on this very demanding test with these very high performing astronaut lookalikes, they showed a 19 percent improvement in cognitive performance in the folks who'd been through Brain HQ. And that was exciting because, you know, these folks were performing well already. One might have thought, well, are we really going to make them any better? Uh, but they got 19% better, which is really quite a lot. And so that lays the groundwork then for taking this research forward uh, into astronauts as part of their training uh, and doing, you know, more complex clinical trials with, uh, you know, other features and other biomarkers and things like that. But it really establishes the ground to say, hey, just about anyone's brain can be made sharper. And, you know, that's kind of a revolution in our thinking. You know, if we look back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, people really did used to think that the brain was hardwired, right? And then eventually they came around to the idea that maybe you could fix a brain that had gotten miswired with a brain injury or a stroke or what have you. And then they kind of came around to the idea that, hey, we could probably improve cognitive function in older folks because they had lost some cognitive function. But really now we're at this cutting edge research where it's become clear that because the brain rewires itself in every single person, well, we can probably make every single person's cognitive performance improve, right? If we can do this with top-tier astronaut lookalikes at NASA and eventually astronauts, hey, Breda, there's hope for all of us, including you and me, that we can build better brain function over time. And finally, Henry, um, you mentioned this is a pilot study. Getting your hands on astronauts is is next. I mean, what what is the future of of this this research, and and what what kind of outstanding questions still remain that you'd like to have answered? 
You you have guessed it exactly right. So the NASA team, having done this pilot and shown that, hey, people can do the brain training exercise and there's evidence that improves their brain function, the NASA team is planning a larger uh, a larger trial of this um, with more people who are astronaut lookalikes and then astronauts after that. You know, in that trial, we'd like to they'd like to measure more things, right? So right now we have this nice uh, cognitive test battery, this very high performance cognitive test battery that NASA uses. But we'd like to use some brain imaging measures. Hey, let's use uh, uh, electroencephalography, for example, EEG, to measure, hey, are we actually seeing information move from one place to another place in the brain faster, which we can clearly see with EEG. There might be the opportunity to do structural magnetic resonance imaging. Hey, can we actually see that certain areas of the brain are, um, you know, are thickening and becoming more healthy or rewiring? You know, that kind of research has been done in um, in adults who are not astronauts who go through brain HQ training, and we clearly see these improvements in brain health. It would be exciting to see them in astronauts. There's been existing studies of astronauts who've gone into space for extended period of times and come back, and when their brains are looked at, again, not invasively, we don't have to crack their skulls open, but using MR, magnetic resonance imaging, you can see that there are subtle changes in the structure of the brain as a result of being in space for a while. Whether that's zero gravity or social isolation, we don't know, but we know that those changes happen. And here on Earth, uh, of course, it would be exciting to run brain HQ studies and say, hey, that we are strengthening those regions of the brain or making them more resilient so that astronauts can resist that when they go into space. So, yeah, uh, more markers, uh, more people, uh, actual astronauts is where this research is going. But, you know, it's exciting because our country is really on a timetable now, right? I'm sure you know, I watched the Artemis launch. I bet you did. I bet everyone who's listening to this show did. And, you know, we're on a timetable now to uh, to put people back in space and back on the moon. And um, so it's time to figure out how to keep their brains healthy as they do that. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid who grew up, uh, you know, reading about people in space. Uh, I'm a kid whose uh, mom's original dream was to be an astronomer. My uh, my daughter's 18. She wants to be an engineer and go work at NASA. You know, it's just a really exciting time to see all this stuff come together and see our nation, you know, on a timetable to do this. And um and, uh, you know, we're just thrilled to be participating in this way to, um, you know, build healthier, better astronauts and make it all happen. We've been speaking with Dr. Henry Monka, CEO of Posit Science, and uh, I hope you all feel a little bit smarter after chatting with him. Like I do. <laughs> Henry, thank you so much for joining us. You know, Brendan, if anyone wants to try these exercises, they can just go to www.brainhq.com. People can register for free and try out these brain training exercises and um, see how you do compared to an astronaut. Again, be sure to check out Brain HQ to check out some of the brain training exercises yourself and prepare your mind like an astronaut. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. But before we go, I'd like to invite you to connect with the show online. And there's plenty of ways to join the conversation. You can follow us on Facebook, search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. We're also on Instagram, A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet? Space. And you can also email the show with segment ideas, suggestions for guests, or just to say, hey, you can email us at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. And support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.